0: Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. Today, we are extremely pleased to have with us Dr. Michael Berenbaum. Dr. Berenbaum served as Deputy Director of the President's Commission on the Holocaust. He was a Project Director of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, as well as Director of the Museum's Holocaust Research Institute. Currently, Dr. Berenbaum serves as the Director of the Siggy Zering Institute exploring the ethical and religious implications of the Holocaust located at the American Jewish University. Dr. Berenbaum is the author and editor of 18 books, including After Tragedy and Triumph, a study of the state of American Jewry in the early 1990s, Anatomy of the Auschwitz Death Camp, After the Passion is Gone, American Religious Consequences. Dr. Berenbaum co-produced One Survivor Remembers, the Gerda Weissman-Klein story, which won both an Academy Award and an Emmy. Additionally, Dr. Berenbaum was the historical consultant for the History Channel's The Holocaust, The Untold Story. And today, we will be discussing The World Must Know, The History of the Holocaust as Told, in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, As you can see, it is a um, comprehensive uh, book and I urge all our listeners and viewers, as I did, to go on to Amazon, click of a button, free delivery. It's really an important book to have on one's coffee table and bookshelf. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Berenbaum, for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, Just to start off a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the academic study of the Holocaust.
1: Let me begin with how I became interested in the Holocaust, and because it's a story in certain respects of my generation. I was educated in post-World War II, Hebrew-speaking yeshivot. Now, Hebrew-speaking yeshivot meant that... um, Our teachers were either survivors or refugees. They were Hebraists. And we learned a wonderful Shakespearean Hebrew. So when I went to Israel for the first time uh, more than 60 years ago, I asked for directions uh, in the following way, If your heart inclineth in my direction, would you kindly indicate to me Thy humble servant, what is the proper path that one should take toward his, his anointed destination? We had heard words, but we never heard anything more detailed. Murder, death, children. And we were the generation of whipped cream and ice cream who were to make up for a lost generation. I also went to a synagogue that was comprised of German and Belgian refugees who had left um, Germany and German-occupied Belgium in the late 1930s and the early 1940s. They were in the diamond business, which meant that they could all um, have portable wealth. If you have real estate, you can be a very wealthy man. You can't move your real estate. If you have diamonds, you can hide them. You can eat them. You can swallow them. You can... Uh, uh, put them in your mouth. You can put them in other places. And they got out, and they were recreating in the United States a world that they had left behind. I then became interested in one question in Jewish history, which is, I think, the most important question. Why? Did, and after Hanukkah we should talk about it. Why did the Jews not go out of business after defeat? We were a defeated people. Not once, not twice, multiple times, we were an exiled people. And we didn't go out of business after defeat. After studying ancient history, somebody turned to me and said, you're not asking an ancient question. You're asking the most profound of all the modern questions. Because the story of our generation is the story of a people who faced defeat And rebuilt in the aftermath of defeat and in certain respects we have come back stronger more powerful and more um, committed than ever before so I came to the Holocaust with a question and I both began um, not with that question but with a study what was the calamity who did it how did it happen Why did the world let it happen? And then my work has really gone into the question of the structure of evil, the response to evil on behalf of the Jewish people, and then the reconstruction of the Jewish people in the aftermath of destruction. And the great story of our rebirth, which is the story of 20th and 21st century Judaism and 20th and 21st century Jewish people. So that's a long way of answering a very basic question.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, Here's a a basic question. Why a Holocaust museum in Washington, D.C.?
1: When we were building the Holocaust museum, the question was, um, would we remember? And how could we tell the story? And I worked on the president's commission well back in 1979 and the president's commission made, um, and that was a commission established by Jimmy Carter, established by Jimmy Carter with two events in mind. The first was the of the Holocaust that just appeared on American television with all of its enormous implications. And suddenly, um, the American people were open. This had appeared right after Roots, and television remembers mainstream. In those days, there were three, four, five channels. It was all mainstream. You had to be the American middle, and it seemed as if the American people were interested in the diverse stories of people in this country and the Holocaust. The doctor drama, the Holocaust, with all its limitations, was told as a personal story. And it resonated. It resonated so deeply that more than half of the American television viewing population saw it. And there was a joke in in um, uh, New York that during the uh, commercial breaks, the water pressure went down because so many people had gone to the bathroom or went to their kitchen to uh, drink something and the like, that they had a problem with water pressure going down every 15 or 30 minutes. Uh, the implications internationally were incredible. The sad, ironic comment in Germany was that the docudrama had more impact than the original. Which such was the power in those days of, of television itself. The second event was that Jimmy Carter announced this on the 30th anniversary of the Foundation of the State of Israel. So this is literally um, 45 years ago. Uh, And the 30th Foundation, uh, he had invited Menachem Begin to the White House. He invited a thousand rabbis and he asked the commission to recommend an appropriate memorial to the Holocaust. Didn't say where it would be, what it would be, that it would be, etc. And the commission came with four basic recommendations that were enormously bold. Number one, they said we want a living memorial, not a statue. A a statue or a memorial works for the generation that remembers, but only if you remember does it work for the generations thereafter. And we felt we needed a living memorial. What was that? It was a museum to tell the story of the Holocaust, an academic research center, an educational program, uh, and uh, a library and archive Days of Remembrance and a series of activities. And then we made a second very major decision that we would build it in Washington and not in New York. That decision meant that we felt that the Holocaust itself was of such significance that it should be remembered It had something to say to the American people in the heart of the American nation and therefore we dared and, and then the question became a how do you tell the story of the Holocaust and B would the people be interested then we always had in mind what about the farmer from Iowa the school kid from Kansas or or, or Missouri uh, would they be interested in the story of the Holocaust and would they understand that it had something to say to the American people um, Ironically, we decided not to build it in New York, which is the largest Jewish community uh, outside of the state of Israel, and actually more Jews in New York City than any other city in in the world. Uh, And the normal thing was to take the bereaved memory of a parochial community and bring it to that community. We said we could bring it to the nation. Such was the power of the Holocaust itself. And then we shaped the exhibition as we built the museum to say this was undertaken by a government. A government that had violated all of the provisions of the American government. The notion of freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, habeas corpus, checks and balances, restraint on the power of government. And the most fundamental of all American values, the inalienable rights of all human beings to life, liberty, and we're we're a little bit less interested in the pursuit of happiness, but life and liberty, religious tolerance, pluralism, and the like. And this was the idea that we would build it, build it in Washington, because the Holocaust was such an earth-shattering event that had something to say to the American people and indeed not only to the American people, but the world. And the museum was controversial in its inception. And that controversy ended the moment it was opened and the people came. And they found that it was moving and meaningful, powerful, and um, um, intense, and consequently the question of whether it belonged in Washington and whether it belonged on the National Mall or adjacent to the National Mall ended so we had the um, we even had the bizarre situation that attendance was so robust in the first weeks of the museum that um, uh, we said please do not come and I think that it's you know it's one of the rare occasions when you've had an institution saying, enough. Uh, but that was the, the nature of our success. Uh, and I stress the word our because a museum is not one person's creation. It's multiple people's creation. Elie Wiesel first started as chairman of the, of the President's Commission on the Holocaust. He brought it to a certain um, level. And then it was turned over to people who knew how to build Uh, and who also trusted um, a team to carry on the agenda. And I was privileged to uh, lead that team, which was one of the great privileges of my lifetime.
0: How does the book, The World Must Know, mirror the museum's exhibits?
1: (laughs) Museums have catalogs. And we said that essentially, instead of making a catalog which shows the collection, we would use a book as a form of telling the mission of the museum. So essentially, it's a companion piece to the exhibition. It's a general history for those who will not get to the museum. It's a reiteration of what you might see and experience within the museum. Um for those who have been to the museum, and it's a way of learning more in a more in a different way than within the museum uh, we had a, a problem when I wrote the book, which is the museum was not yet open so we had to in one sense imagine what it would look like and create accordingly and then in the second edition, which was done about 13. 13- Years later, we were able to use uh, visuals from within the museum because the museum was open and created. And we've had, uh, and the book has been a companion piece ever since, as well as something, and and you yourself can probably attest to it better than I can, which is something that is worthy of an independent read, even if you don't know the museum and, and had never heard of the museum.
0: How would you assess the current state of Holocaust institution in American educational institutions? I know it's a broad question.
1: Well, let's begin with the most important um, meaning of all at this moment. We are at a transitional moment in time. And that is, we are moving from lived memory to historical memory. We all know that the survivors who were the bearers of living memory are diminishing uh, every day. And even those who were not losing are growing older and consequently less capable of being the the visible incarnations of their own experience. What's replacing them, then, is, number one, they have left the most incredible record of historical testimony ever experienced uh, in any event in human history. Let me give you one simple illustration. There are 36 audio recordings of people who lived through slavery in the Library of Congress of the United States. 36 Americans have tape recorded their experience have been recorded with their experience of what it was like to be a slave. We probably have in excess of 80 or 90,000 video testimonies of survivors telling their story, which means that you don't have the capacity any longer merely for an elite history told by people who have memoirs and wrote books and wrote letters and diaries and all of that. But you can hear from everybody, from um, a professor to a peddler, from a baker to a banker, from an industrialist and a scientist to a, a common laborer, all of whom lived through ordinary people who lived through the most extraordinary events and bore witness to what they experienced. That will be a historical record of enormous magnitude. And part of what we have to do is to mine that material to be able to continue their message and teach the lessons and also the history that they have taught us. So we're all at a very important transitional memory, transitional moment in time. And um, let me use a, a biblical analogy um, which is that um, the story in in the book of Breshit, in the book of, of Genesis, is that Lot, his wife, and two daughters escaped from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife looked back, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Lot's daughters thought that they were the last two women on earth. They thought their father was the last man on earth. They... Got him drunk, they seduced him, and they gave birth to two great nations. And what's remarkable is the Torah comments on that without evaluating what essentially we would have to call incest. Um, I look at that story and I say, if you look back too soon, Lot's wife, you're paralyzed by grief. What you have to get on with is the difficult, compromised notion of survival and recreation. But if you don't look back after that, you have no memory. And we have looked back again at that darkness, faced that darkness, looked it straight into the face, and have learned from it. And then survivors transform themselves in our lifetime. And I presume you're of my generation more or less, perhaps younger, but still of my generation. In our lifetime, we've seen them transformed from damaged goods, which was the original sense of it. And I don't mean that as a judgment on them, as a judgment of our perceptions. From damaged goods to bearers of history and witnesses, and I believe that we've done something in this last generation that is almost of biblical importance, which is that the great Jewish story of history is the story of the Exodus, story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And what the Jews do with the memory of sl- of slavery, and the Exodus, is they made it into a particular story of universal implications with ethical and moral consequences. So we remember it, we retell the story, and we therefore learn how to treat the widow, the orphan, the stranger, how to return the tools of the laborer, how to have the Sabbath, how to treat those who are poor and indentured, indentured, etc., etc. We've made it into a moral uh, statement. In which we learn many, many things, and the word in memory of uh, the Exodus from Egypt, Zechar, litziat Mitzrayim, is used more and more throughout the Bible, and it's at the core of the Jewish experience. I think we have now remembered the Holocaust as an ethical and moral implication for our generation and future generations, as a call, as a warning, as a cry. Uh, as a lesson and as a um, commitment first for the Jews, but also a universal story so that other people understand what this represents. Let me give you a personal experience. I was in Rwanda right after the genocide. I was there in part to advise on how do you bury the dead, but still document the crime so you can't have denial set in. Denial is part of all genocides, and Holocaust denial is followed by the denials of multiple genocides of all over the world. So you merely have to marshal your evidence to be able to do it. What people in Rwanda wanted to hear from were survivors, which is, how do you get up the morning after? And how do you live in the land of your anguish? And how do you recreate life in the aftermath of that anguish? Uh, we just had, um, in fact, I, I spoke in Shulish this past Shabbat on um, the name Ephraim. And what does Ephraim mean? God made me fertile in the land of my affliction. Ephraim be- Eberit Son Ye. The land of my affliction, land of my suffering, um, uh, God has made me has made me fertile. This is part of the story that I first began to ask about what is what is Jewish re- rebirth in the aftermath of destruction. So the long thing is, we're preparing for a transition. We ironically, sadly, tragically, horrifically live in a world in which the Holocaust is becoming more important, not less important. People are using the G word genocide again and again. They're using crimes against humanity. Um, one side claims that it's fighting Nazis. We also live in a world in which there's Holocaust denial, which is, uh, again, uh, lunacy. It's the equivalent of the flat earth society, but, um, um, In one sense, the people who deny the Holocaust are denying it because in some deep level they want to repeat it or they want to complete it. So the state of education is that it's been transformed into institutions. The institutions are growing and transforming themselves before our eyes. I can point to 10 different museums that have been renewed in the last five years. Museums in Dallas, in Houston, in Cincinnati, in St. Louis, in New York, and that's just to begin, in Melbourne, in Sydney, in Johannesburg, all of them have taken on a new mission because they understand that they've lost one of the most important focal points of their educational work, which was the experience of survivors. We also have an attempt, which is interesting and not yet um, fully understood as to whether it works or not, to use uh, a very long interview of a thousand questions for survivor and artificial intelligence in order to conduct a posthumous conversation with that survivor, asking them all sorts of questions about their life and allowing, as it were, the encounter with survivors to continue even when the survivor is no longer. How that's going to work, and we now have even um, virtual reality so you can visit um, Auschwitz with a survivor as your guide with a series of glasses and literally feel uh, all of the dimensions of the barracks all of the dimensions of camps, all of the dimensions of the room in something quite incredible and, again, a one-on-one uh, experience and encounter. So there are a variety of different ways. And look, there's been enormous intellectual productivity, enormous combing of, of, of archives, and every day we learn more. And part of what's been the sheer intellectual fascination for me is that I'm never bored in what I study. Um, Even this year, let me give you an example, a brand new series of archives have become open. Israel had honor trials in the uh, late 1940s and 1950s of people whom had been accused of collaborating with the Nazis. Let's assume you saw somebody who had been a capo and he had been part of, God forbid, murdering your father or your, or your child. You brought them to trial in Israel. Those records were sealed for 70 years. The 70 years have now passed, and we now can understand how Jews judge Jews for their behavior, which may or may not have been collaborative, but may have been costly of Jewish lives. So this is a whole new field about the victims victimizing each other. And that, by the way, is not to say the Jews did it. It's the, it's the Nazis and their collaborators and their and their enablers at the like. But we're also asking a question, if you teach in my field now, students ask, the, ask a question that they weren't asking 20 years ago. How does a democratic government become authoritarian? and become totalitarian. Now, sadly, that's a question we can ask today. 30 years ago, we were marveling when we found authoritarian governments becoming democratic. And in fact, I'll digress for a moment woman whose name you may remember, Jean Kirkpatrick, Mm -hmm. UN representative um, uh, under the uh, Reagan administration, got a reputation when said we have to cooperate, America has to cooperate with totalitarian um, rulers, with authoritarian rulers, because they may uh, eventually become, they may eventually become democratic leaders and lead their countries to become democracies. But authoritarian rulers, that's a no, no, no. The end of that decade, she wrote that article at the beginning of 1980. By the end of that decade, authoritarian rulers were becoming heads of, heads of participants or have been overthrown and the countries were becoming democratic. And we're now seeing Sadly, tragically, painfully, the reversal of that process in which democratic leaders are becoming authoritarian and, God forbid, totalitarian. So we ask different questions of the same material. And part of the intellectual fascination of the Holocaust is that it has massive implications History of at least twenty-three different countries in terms of participation. Two great monotheistic religions, Judaism and Christianity. The power of government, the nature. Look, we've only this year experienced the power of resistance in 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 the form of Zelensky, who said, "Don't send me a ride. Don't send me a ride. Give me ammunition." And we've seen resistance right we just finished the few against the mighty who could have imagined that 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 the Ukraine and by the way and Jews have a, a peculiar feeling we couldn't imagine ourselves rooting for Ukraine <laughs> given its historical record vis-a-vis the Jews but the few against the mighty the Ukraine would be able to resist Soviet aggression, Nobody imagined that was possible. The war would last a week, a month. Now we're what? We're uh, 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 in our 10th month, in our 11th month of of this war, all because of the power of resistance. Therefore, we understand the power of
0: resistance in a new way. What role do you believe holocaust education can play or plays in combating anti-semitism in the united States. i'll
1: give you the shortest answer possible we don't know okay and that is that we thought originally that if people remembered the holocaust that would bring an end to anti-semitism and let's say that that it's true that that happened The most marvelous example of there are two marvelous examples in our world today. Look at the transformation in the Roman Catholic Church's attitude toward Jews that occurred essentially by people who remembered the Holocaust. John the 23rd, now Saint John the 23rd, and I have no problem calling him a saint reversed 2,000 years of Christian history by saying Jews are not responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. If Jesus Christ died for our sins, then if we didn't sin, there would be no need for crucifixion. And consequently, he changed that teaching. His successor, St. John Paul II, and by the way, and and there's a paradox that Yitz Greenberg always pointed out that the guilty the the guilty felt innocent and the innocent felt guilty. Pope John the twenty third was an archbishop who worked with the Jews in Turkey. And working with the Jews in Turkey, he helped the people like Teddy Kolak and and the Shuv try to help save. Hungarian Jews. When he went to France, he studied anti-Semitism with Julius Isaac and steeped himself in that. He also, in violation of church policy, helped return Jewish children to the Jewish people. So he should have felt innocent when he became Pope. He said, we have to do something about this. John Paul II, who had Jewish friends even before he studied for the priesthood, had a Jewish girlfriend, was in the theater in which he went to the university with Jews, had a his closest friend was a Jew, later became an Israeli whom he asked to move to Rome when he became Pope because he wanted the friendship of a person who walked in and didn't believe he was infallible. Which is, you know, A pope can't have a wife who makes him feel human. Therefore, you need a friend who can keep you uh, on on the straight and narrow. Um, having said that, he recognized the state of Israel. And he said something that was absolutely unbelievable. He said anti-Semitism is anti-Christian. Put a quittal in the Western Wall apologizing for the anti-Semitism of Christians. By the way, not of Christianity. He didn't say everything I wanted him to say. And then our current Pope, Pope Francis, ended the mission to the Jews. We don't have to convert Jews, he said of Roman Catholicism. Jews are okay with God. The original covenant still stands, still binds. If we had imagined that taking place in 2,000 years of Christianity, it has to be seen as an act of What shall we say? Repentance. Second example is Germany. Germany has changed its attitude toward the Jews. German Jewish community is the most rapidly increasing Jewish community in the world. uh, With the possible exception of Israel now in the aftermath of the Ukrainian crisis with the Aliyah that's taking place, not from the Ukraine side, but from the Russian side. And its attitude toward Israel has been very good. And Angela Merkel, who for 17 years led Germany, was pro-Jewish, not because she loved the Jews, but she didn't want Germany to go back to that world. So that, too, has to be seen as those who face the past. Now, go back to Holocaust denial for a moment. You had the, 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 the unbelievable craziness of where the president of Iran would deny the Holocaust and the prime minister and chancellor of Germany would say, we did it. Who should deny the Holocaust? The perpetrators. Iran, ironically, had a ble- <laughs> a blemish-free record during the Shoah. It became a way station for Jews seeking refuge. You have the children of Tehran who came to Palestine, the pre-state Israel. So they should, I, I want, I, I don't speak Farsi and I, I didn't have the time to learn it, but I said, if there was one book I wanted to write during Ahmadinejad's rule was I wanted to write of the goodness of the Iranian people and say to him, why, I understand you don't know German history. Okay. You're not supposed to know German history, but why don't you know Iranian history and know the decency of your people and how they saved and rescued people? Shame him into confronting this history in a very different way, as if he was capable of shame. But the reality is that that we've seen instances of it, but we now understand with the rise of anti-Semitism that there are those who want to replicate the Shoah. Hitler didn't go far enough. You had somebody who had the audacity on, on on January 6th to wear Auschwitz staff. and then you have the sweatshirt 6mWE 6 million wasn't enough. Well, we can say at least he's not denying the show up, but what does he want to do he wants to complete it. And that is part of the the the, the, um, the tragedy of our time, so I wish I could say, remember the Holocaust, an antidote to For some, it's a desire to what? To replicate it, and a fascination. Years ago, I taught at Georgetown, and I taught uh, with a lot of people who were part of the School of International Relations. The elites of the third world used to send some of their um, sons and less of their daughters, but some of their daughters also, to the United States for a Georgetown education. And I always was scared that there was somebody in the back of my class making a note. Okay, Hitler made the following mistakes. If I get into rule, I'm not going to make them. Here's how you commit genocide without making those mistakes. And one could have a blueprint for how to do it. Given what I was teaching about that history. Even in the structure of evil, the nature of evil. So I always was a little bit worried that there would be many who would learn something very different. And there would be one who would learn something very different.
0: How does the museum deal with the Roosevelt administration's response to the Holocaust?
1: I'll give you a simple word, truthfully. And that is truthfully means that you have to understand um Let me give it to you what uh, they would say in, he- in Hebrew, Nimratz. The most important thing that Franklin Don Roosevelt did was to prepare the American people to enter World War II, to enter World War II, and to have prepared the infrastructure for the remilitarization of the United States and its capacity to defeat Adolf Hitler on the battlefield. He fought World War II, and for this we always have to be grateful. And he fought World War II in such a way that we won World War II. The dilemma was of the Roosevelt administration was that the Germans fought two wars. They fought the World War, and they fought the war against the Jews, or we can even enlarge it and say the racial war. The administration only fought one war. And the administration believed that we shall win the war and then we'll deal with these refugees. And my colleague at Georgetown, the late, great, noble uh, Jan Karski, said when he met with Roosevelt, by then it would be too late. And consequently, the United States did not receive enough people because we had anti-Semites who were running the bureaucracy, In the 1930s, under the quota system, it then had a limited window of opportunity to accept people over the mountains of uh, France separating um, uh, France being separated from um, uh, Spain by the Pyrenees and then on to Portugal, which still had voyages to the United States. We could not have saved as many as people imagine we could save because almost all of the violence was occurring in Eastern Europe, far away from where the Americans were. And I've written um, a book on the issue of the bombing of Auschwitz and uh, or of the non-bombing of Auschwitz. My title is The Bombing of Auschwitz Should the Allies Have Attempted It and the And I believe they should have attempted it, but I also want to offer a measurement that by the time the allies were in position to bomb Auschwitz, 90% of all of the Jews who were murdered were already dead. And the question of bombing Auschwitz is, is not to solve the bulk of the killing process, But to make a statement that we understand what's happening and we abhor what's happening and and the like, but it, it wouldn't have been what we would call the magic bullet that people imagine it to be. Even by the, and let me just give you one piece of precision which you may not want. We had Italian bases that were 528 miles away from Auschwitz which meant that you had to go 1,056 miles without refueling. You had to go out heavy. You had to come back light. You dropped your bombs. You had lost your fuel. That could only be done in daylight and only in good weather because we didn't have the capacity to refuel at that point. There were also attempts that were never undertaken, but to get the underground groups, Underground groups from, for example, the Czech or the Polish resistance and even Soviet uh, troops to undertake a ground operation, they did not materialize. But the bottom line is we didn't do enough. We didn't scream and the like. And the most important um, moral judgment, I believe, was given by uh, a wonderful uh, rabbi, who we'll put it in, in the deepest terms imaginable, Rabbi Haskell lukstein He said, the Holocaust may have been unstoppable, but it should have been unbearable, and it wasn't. By that he meant nothing that the American Jewish community could have done might have stopped it. And aside from winning the war and taking certain gestures The Americans could have rescued more, but they couldn't have stopped the massive killing as it was taking place. The time to oppose the evil that took place was very early when America was uninterested in that. Once it materialized, once it took shape, then only military triumph could do that. But we didn't care enough. We didn't do enough. And uh, we failed. And that failure is a total collective failure. And you have to tell the story of that and tell it truthfully.
0: You had mentioned previously the, the uh, power of roots and the Holocaust on television. What was your experience in producing or acting as a consultant for Holocaust movies or documentaries? Look,
1: I'm usually invited as a consultant for those who want to do it right. And that is that, and my first, I, I get consulted very often by those who want to do it. And my first piece of advice is don't add drama, let the drama speak forth. And that is that the real falsification occurs when people want to invent drama instead of lose the, let the drama of the event itself. Come forth. Um, I I tell a very humorous uh, story, which is my wife came into our marriage with a handyman. And in fact, we have a handyman working uh, as we speak today uh, at home. And the handyman one day came to my wife and said, you know, Melissa, It would be wiser and cheaper and faster if you called me before your husband started to fix things. Humiliating me in all sorts of ways, but not that he was wrong. I don't dispute that he was 100% accurate. So um, I I once participated in a film um, in which they came to me afterwards. And when they came to me afterwards, they had the Polish Jews with yellow stars. But Poles didn't wear yellow stars. They wore white armbands. They had um, the Polish, the Jewish stars before the German um, invasion of Poland. By the time I was finished telling them how to make it accurate, I told them the story, and they laughed because we could have saved you an we could have saved you an awful lot of money if we did it first and then made the film. And um, consequently, they've given that advice to other people. And it's not that I help avoid; it's not that I able to influence the process. I help sometimes avoiding mistakes. I, I make several of my own films. And in fact, the best films I've ever made are films that made themselves. You mentioned One Survivor Remembers with the late, great, uh, wonderful um, Gerda Klein. It took very little talent. All it did was we had to recognize her talent and get the hell out of the way. Once you put her in front of the camera, it was magic. And she had an incredible story to tell. I have won two Oscars in two documentaries in which I can tell you it took zero talent. It only took the recognition of of talent. Two Emmys, not Oscars, I'm sorry. It only took the recognition of talent and letting the survivors speak forth. So I have learned to appreciate the material and to use film as a technique for presenting this material to audiences that are not going to come to my lectures, that I'm not going to read books and not going to um, um, not going to uh, attend museums because we live in a generation which wants it all and wants it all on its living room couch. And one of the worst things that were developed was the clicker which essentially means that if you don't get them interested in the first two minutes, you lose them. And consequently, you have to do everything imaginable to keep their interest. But survivor's testimony keeps their interest. And the Shoah is of such power that it deals with issues of life and death, with issues of ultimacy. And consequently, it also retains a very unique
0: and very distinct power. You discussed um, in the book, um, if I recall, what's the right term to use, Holocaust? You just said Shoah, Orban, destruction. What's your thought?
1: Let's talk about the terms for one second. The Germans used the term final solution to the Jewish problem. And they were not lying, meaning that once you declare the Jews a problem, then you want a solution. The final solution is their elimination, men, women, and children, forever and ever. The term Holocaust is problematic because Holocaust comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew word "olah," And "olah" is a burnt offering offered whole unto the Lord. It's very difficult to say that, and we understand why it got the word Holocaust, because of the burning of bodies in the, in the crematoria. But again, that's not the whole Holocaust. There's the Holocaust by bullets, which is the murder. And the second is, um, it's not offered unto the Lord. If anything, it's offered, and I'm going to be theological. It's offered unto the anti-Lord by people who wanted to play God. And who had no sense of of fear and trembling before the God, before God. So, in one sense, it's a little bit prettifying and theologically problematic. Shoah is a whirlwind of destruction and has a power all its own. Uh, was the word that the, originally Jews used because it was linked to the destruction of the first and second temples, the korban, and again a burning, um, a, a burning uh, sense. So every word has its own power and its own inadequacy, because in essence words fail us in trying to describe all that this was. So we try our best. And just because we fail doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And again, some of the great writers, I think, of Primo Levi, who said that this would have to invent its own language, and um, I use hungry, it means, you know, I'd like to get a cup of tea and I really didn't have enough breakfast and you're keeping me from completing my, I'm in California, so even though this is uh, this is morning, my time, you're keeping me from breakfast. They got hungry in 41, they got hungry again in 45. I use cold, which means I can turn on, I should turn up my heat by two degrees and be comfortable. They got cold in October, they got warm again in May. And every moment between October and May was the type of cold that chills you to your bones to which there is no warmth. So what is this murder? What is this killing? What is decimation? A language was introduced by Raphael Lemkin called genocide. Genus and Sides today is murder. The murder of a species. The diminishment of humanity. So I use a variety of terms. All of them have a certain poignancy and power to them, and all of them have a certain inadequacy.
0: Just uh, in conclusion, what's next uh, personally in this field for you? Next projects?
1: Well, I'm currently involved in, in three different um, uh, projects um, that are interesting. We're going to build a museum in Boston on the Boston Commons. And the issue that we're wrestling with is not how to tell the story of the Holocaust in that museum, but how do we relate it to the American story of revolution, which is part of the ethos. I follow principle in every museum I do, which is the place from which you remember an event shapes how you remember it. So in Washington, we remember the story one way, in New York another. In New York, you have to deal with em- with immigration. In Washington, you have to deal with government. In, um, in Budapest, you have to deal with the Hungarian experience. In Jerusalem, you have to deal with what what does this, what has this done to Jews and the like in Boston, we have to deal with America. But one of the interesting things is we're not sure what America is going to be like in 2025 when we open. So it causes us a reflection of what do we say of the story that shapes it and relates it to America. And we're playing with different ideas. One of the ideas we're playing with is an interesting idea. And I mention it because maybe somebody who will listen to this program will have a better idea than we have. One of the ideas we're having is what about America made survivors comfortable in rebuilding their lives here? What did they expect of America and what did they find in America that allowed them to rebuild it? in a very basic way. The second project I have is in, uh, Bucharest. And the third project that I have is in the Warsaw ghetto, which is where we re- rehabilitating a building, an original hospital building in the Warsaw ghetto. Tell the story of the Warsaw ghetto museum. And next week I'm going to, um, Uh, be part of a presentation of a movie that we did called Reckoning on the uh, grappling between Germany and the Jewish people over the question of reparations what Germany called Wittergutmachin and all that it represented in the controversy because um, no less a figure than Menachem Begin called it absolution. Uh, And yet, in a very real respect, it was the means by which Germany rejoined the family of nations, and a good Germany rejoined the family nations, and by which survivors got um, originally the capacity to rebuild their lives with a certain measure of dignity And now in old age, the capacity to end, to come to the end of their lives with also a certain measure of dignity. And yet, in a very interesting way, it will falsify for history the nature of survivors, because when you go through the historical record, survivors to get um, reparations, had to have a medical examination, which showed wounds, by the way, physical or psychological. And consequently, we're going to see them as wounded instead of seeing some other capacity, which is the incredible character strength will it took in order to survive. So we represent all of the ambiguity and all of the um, struggle over the question of reparations and what that represents. And those are, that's one of the reasons that, uh, A, I'm not contemplating retirement and, B, that I find everything that I touch in this field of enduring interest.
0: This has been um, absolutely fascinating, and, um, unfortunately, our time is up. Um, Dr. Barrow, thank you so much. Again, I urge all our uh, listeners and viewers, see those in the United States, those visiting Washington, D.C., to obviously visit the museum and um encourage all of them to purchase the book, which is so important. Uh, Dr. Berenbon, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very much.
1: Thank you very much for having me.